Good morning. Isn't it nice that Mother's Day is on a Sunday this year? I caught some of you. And then there's a whole group of you that are going, oh, Mother's Day. Even though I warned you for the past couple of weeks, just to spite you, we've removed our Mother's Day gifts in the bookstore. No, we haven't, so... If you haven't gotten the mother in your life a spiritual gift, you can go ahead and get one today, uh, and we will post-date it so that... (laughs) Why don't you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Luke. We're going to be still in chapter 1, looking at verses 26 through 38. In an amazing coincidence, we're looking at the birth announcement to Mary here on Mother's Day. I'll tell you, is God good or what? No one can accuse me of ignoring Mother's Day today. (laughs) If you're going to laugh, just laugh, you know, just don't hold back like I do. All right, now we're in Luke. It's chapter 1, verse 26, and I can't wait any longer for you to find it. So here it goes. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he shall call and and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Join me for prayer. Father, we do want to seek you in prayer to ask simply, Lord, that the words that we've spoken that are stirring within us now, Lord, because they're living and powerful, would lead us in new and exciting directions in our walk with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said... Amen. Mary is a difficult character to study. We have our many preconceived ideas about her. Let's face it, some of us have worshipped her or at least prayed to her. We see her, and I mean this sincerely, so don't laugh, more as a statue than as a sister in the Lord. Okay, you can laugh if you want. Who was this maidservant of the Lord? According to the best historical sources, she was a teenager, no more than 15 years old at the time, and maybe as young as 12. 
As with all poor peasant girls, she was illiterate, and her knowledge of the Scriptures very limited. The best she could hope for was to marry humbly and give birth to numerous poor children, never traveling more than a few miles from her home in Nazareth. Speaking of Nazareth, it was like a no place. We have some of those around here. Outside of the big city of Riverdale <laughs> is the little city of Lanaire. How many of you have ever been to Lanaire? Right on. How many of you have been born in Lanaire? Lanaire. Okay. A lot of those little cities around here. Nazareth was that kind of a place, nondescript. It was not even directly mentioned in the Old Testament or in the accounts of the famous Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. It was a shoddy, corrupt, halfway stop between the port cities of Tyre and Sidon. It was overrun by Gentiles and Roman soldiers. When guileless, straight-talking Nathaniel mentioned Nazareth, he said these famous words, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? That's the reputation that Lanier, I mean, Nazareth had. <laughs> Young Mary of Nazareth was betrothed. Betrothal was sometimes called espousal and was a legally binding engagement. The groom and bride did not live with each other, certainly did not have sexual relations. But from their betrothal forward, they were considered husband and wife. A divorce would be necessary to break their betrothal. The betrothal always lasted for a minimum of one year to allow at least a full nine months to pass. That was to make certain that the bride was a virgin at the time of the betrothal and remained so until her wedding night. If she was discovered to be pregnant before the year ended, then it became known that she was an adulteress. The punishment for adultery, according to the Jewish law, was the death penalty, although it was no longer carried out. But you might remember the story in the Gospel of John of a woman who, caught in the very act of committing adultery, was dragged to Jesus, the religious leaders using her as some kind of a religious test case in her shameful condition, saying, okay, Jesus, the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? And so that's kind of the attitude that they had about adulteresses in those days. If not death disowning. For the shame and guilt such a pregnancy brought upon the family, the daughter might be disowned, turned out into the streets to make her living as the prostitute she had proven herself to be by her adultery. It was in this social context and with these spiritual consequences that Mary was told she would conceive and bring forth a son. What we look back upon with awe was an awful trial of enormous magnitude. Nevertheless, it was a promise to her from God, one that would be accomplished through God's power. Mary's response was prayer, not prayer to escape or even to endure her trial, but to embrace the promise and to be enabled by God's power. So we have God's power and His promises and our prayers. These are things all believers can identify with as we study the announcement of Jesus' birth to the Virgin Mary. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, no promise of God's is void of His power. And number two, no prayer of yours should avoid God's power. First of all, in verses 26 through 37, just about our whole text, no promise of God's is void of His power. 
In the midst of this amazing account, the angel Gabriel made a statement that stands alone and reverberates throughout eternity as a spiritual principle. It's what he said in verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. There are a few other ways in which we could accurately translate his original words into English. Let me give you this same phrase in three different Bible translations. For no promise from God will be impossible of fulfillment. For everything spoken of God is possible. For no word from God shall be void of power. Gabriel appeared to Mary and made her a very specific promise. It was and remains unique in the whole history of the human race. Although there were other miraculous births, other supernatural births, there has only ever been one virgin birth. Mary's promise was specific and unique, but it also teaches us about all God's other promises. All His promises, every one of them, made as they are to you and I in Scripture, are included in Gabriel's summation that no word of God, no promise from God, shall be void of His power to accomplish it. God's promises, all of them, come with the power necessary for their fulfillment. Nothing could be more encouraging to the Christian. When I'm reading God's Word, reading the Bible, and there is a promise, it is the power to enable me. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but the word used by Gabriel for power, many of you know, is a Greek word, dunamis, from which we get our English word, dynamite or as it is sometimes pronounced, dynamite. Remember that? Some of you remember that. What is that even from? Don't tell me. God's Word wants to explode like dynamite into and through your life. Gabriel's appearance and announcement were certainly a dynamic explosion in first century Nazareth. And so in verse 26, we read again, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee, named Nazareth. In the previous verses, Luke had described the supernatural pregnancy of Elizabeth, who would be the mother of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who would announce his coming. Uh, It was now the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Gabriel was dispatched from heaven to lowly Nazareth of Galilee. Note that it wasn't Jerusalem and it wasn't Rome. It was nowhere It was the most unlikely place for the king of the Jews to be born, the last place you and I would choose. You know, we need to always arrange our thinking about God and His nature and His character from His Word. Uh, We do things in a very different way today. We, you know, if we had a dignitary coming or if we wanted to do something special, we wouldn't do it in Riverdale. We wouldn't do it in Lanier. Uh, we, would, we probably wouldn't even do it in Hanford. I mean, when's the last time Arnold Schwarzenegger was here, you know? I mean, they pick these towns because they, they want to have some significance. Uh, and, and yet God says, the perfect place for my son to be born, for the Savior of the world to be conceived, rather, is Nazareth. And the perfect place for him to be born is Bethlehem. And you and I are just ought to be mind-blown by that. And then in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. Mary was somewhere in her year of betrothal, preparing for her wedding to Joseph by keeping herself sexually pure. 
Joseph was a descendant of King David. This is important because even though Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, he would be able to trace his lineage through his stepdad back to David. I want to remind you that Luke was a medical doctor, maybe with a specialty in obstetrics. He spends a lot of time talking about these births. When he used the word virgin, which he did twice in this one verse, he knew what he was talking about and he meant what he said. Verse 28, and having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, I don't know why, but I kind of focused in on on this idea that the angel came in. It says he, uh, having come in, it means he had to enter the house. I, I always think about angels just appearing, don't you? You know, just, you know, Mary is, I've only ever seen Mary depicted, you know, on her knees because all she ever did was pray night and day and night and day and night and day, you know, is the idea that they give you. And then because she was so holy, an angel had to appear to her. And so here he is, you know, glowing like a lava lamp in the corner of her, or like lava, lava island maybe, you know, and and, uh, see, I can tie all this in. Anyway, uh, but it says here he came in. Now, I want to, this is my pure speculation, so don't, you know, don't hold it against me, but I, I, I think he knocked on the door. I'll get it. Oh, you know, but he had to come in, and then he gave his announcement. I wouldn't have let him in. Angels are bad news a lot of times. I mean, they, you know, she probably, she, you know, she had heard, I'm sure, about Elizabeth and Zacharias. The last time an angel appeared, he struck somebody deaf and dumb. Or people bow down and worship them because they're so glorious, and then everybody's freaked out because you're not supposed to do that. And so he had to gain entrance into this. I know a little bit about this because in my work as a chaplain, a lot of times I have the worst possible news to deliver to people, and I have to somehow get into their house to do it or into their place of business, and no one wants to let me in, Uh, and, and for good reason. It's, it, you know, when, when a police officer and a chaplain are at your door, something has happened, and it's usually not that they have the wrong address. I mean, there's a problem about to occur, and there are people who say, I've had, I've had talks with people, I've said, uh, you know, I've introduced myself, I'd like to come. No, you can't come in. What happened? I really need to tell you and say, be better if I, no, what happened? I'm not coming, I'm not telling you until you let me in. And there's a good reason for that. And so I kind of, you know, maybe it's just me, but Gabriel somehow has to get in the house, and, and Mary is freaked out. I don't know what you think about Mary, but she's 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. An angel has appeared to her house. She's letting him in. She's freaked out. She doesn't even have television. No internet, no newspapers. All she probably did was get water every day and, and clean and cook and stuff, and now an angel is at her house. Whatever he did was appropriate to his mission in terms of how he entered her house. Angels have great perspective seeing they inhabit heaven. Gabriel greeted Mary with heaven's perspective on her assignment. First of all, she should rejoice at being chosen to serve. Regardless the context and the consequences of her circumstances, serving God was a cause for rejoicing. And so this is the first word he said to her once he was in, Rejoice. Sets the tone for everything else. Then he said she was highly favored. It means that her assignment would be accompanied by the strength of God's grace sufficient for the task. And then he said, the Lord is with you. And literally, 
uh, the word is isn't there, and so it's literally the Lord with you. And this is a prayer of Gabriel's for God's blessings to come upon her. And he says she was blessed among women. This is because every Jewish woman hoped to be the mother of the Messiah promised in Genesis to Eve. Now, mind you, I don't think they understood what it was going to be like to be the mother of the Messiah. They, they didn't know that it was going to be a virgin birth and that there were going to be serious social and spiritual consequences for the rest of their life. They thought that they were going to have the normal pride of a, a mother whose child grows up to be the president of the United States and people can say, oh, look, you know, wow, what a great mom. And he can get up and say, I owe everything to my mom. But uh, anyway, over the centuries, folks have turned these words into a prayer to Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Now, okay, I didn't catch anybody. Usually you start praying when you hear that, you know, but I've said those, I, I had to say that every Saturday, probably a dozen times until I quit going to confession uh, because it was a, a prayer that we prayed in the Roman Catholic tradition to seek the forgiveness of our sins. And it's from this passage of Scripture, but it's really not a prayer for her or, or not a prayer to uh, it, it's a prayer for her, not to her. Mary was blessed, but look upon her with a balanced and biblical understanding. In a few verses, she will sing of her son, of Jesus, as her Savior. Mary needed the Savior because she was a sinner. She had and has no grace of her own to give anyone, but she received grace from God for salvation and to accomplish her service. Gabriel's greeting is essentially her job description. She had been chosen to serve God and would receive all the grace needed for her service. The same is true of every servant of God. Each of us serves by God's assignment, and if He has assigned us, we can be sure of His sufficient grace. It's not that I have any grace in myself. And that God comes and He says, man, Gene, I need you so bad. You're just so perfect. And, and you know, uh, we need to release this grace to other people. I mean, he, he looks around and He says, who's the biggest bonehead I can find <laughs> that at least loves me and, and, and is following after me so that when He's done, people will say, man, that's got to be God because that's the biggest bonehead I know. And, and it's God's grace poured through you, not grace coming from you. Verse 29, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Startled, confused, and perplexed are alternative words that describe Mary's initial reaction of being troubled. Gabriel's words were a summary. He hadn't yet told her what the assignment was. And there's a lesson in that greeting. Your specific task is of secondary importance to the fact that God has called you to perform it and will therefore enable and empower you to do it. It doesn't really matter what God asks you to do. You just should understand that He has called you to do something. And this is great. This is kind of a job description for ministry. You know, I get a little bit taken back sometimes when people want a job description for the ministry. I understand there are certain parameters and boundaries and barriers and things like that, but uh, job descriptions might be good out in the workplace. In fact, they are good. But in the church and, and ministering for God, they're not very good. 
Because your job description as a servant, we'll see in a minute, is just to be a slave as unto the Lord and to do whatever needs to be done. And so you can't really say that, well, your job description, you know, doesn't include cleaning toilets because there might be a dirty toilet and there's nothing else to do. Or if you like cleaning toilets, if that's what you do for God, and somebody stops by and needs to be prayed with or prayed for or some kind of counsel from God's Word, you can't say, well, I just clean toilets. God hasn't really called me to minister. And see, so it works both ways. And so don't ever ask, if you ever ask me what your job description is, then you, you, you're not understanding what it means to be a servant. You think you're a volunteer, and volunteerism is not really what God is after. He's after servants' hearts, people who are willing to do anything, not knowing what it is yet, and I like that about God. Verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary was afraid. Gabriel told her to stop being afraid. Found favor with God is a phrase sometimes used in the Old Testament to preface the service someone was chosen to perform. Now, the angel is looking upon such an individual as favored or privileged, not because of anything in that person, but because of God's decision to use them despite their many faults and failings. You know, it must absolutely blow the minds of angels the way God does things. Uh, you know, they're, they're super intelligent, supernatural beings, but they're not omniscient or omnipresent or any of the things that God is. And so, you know, when they look down at us, I mean, I mean they're, they're way better than us in one I mean, they're, they're cool. I mean, they appear, they reappear, they seem to have eternal bodies already. I don't know if they have wings, but they fly really fast, you know, and, and, and they're powerful and smart, and they, you know, and they look at us and they think, God, why don't you just let me do it? Why are you letting that guy do that when I could do a much better job? And God says, no, no, that's not my plan. My strength is going to be made perfect in the weakness of that individual. And so the angels, when they came, they said, man, you have, you're privileged and I don't understand it. An angel comes to Gideon, and Gideon is like hiding because he's afraid of the Midianites. And the angel says, oh, mighty man of God. And Gideon's like, yeah, he left a few minutes ago. I'm just here by myself. That's the attitude. The angels are like, man, you can't, if you knew what a great thing it is to serve God and what a privilege it is. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. This is the bombshell. No wonder Gabriel waited a few verses to tell her. He was getting her ready. God gets you ready. He prepares you for what is coming, or at least he wants to. Your part is to cooperate by walking each day in a manner in which God's preparations can be encountered and experienced. You see, I'm a firm believer of the fact that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day, but God does. And He is gracious enough and merciful enough and loving enough and kind enough to prepare you for it spiritually. He doesn't tell you what's going to happen because then you'd divert yourself away from it many times. But He prepares you so that when it comes... Or we can blow him off and say, well, I, I don't need to go to church or Bible study. I don't need to read my word. I really don't need to do any of that spiritual stuff because I'm a Christian. 
I've been saved. I'm under the blood. You know, that kind of a thing. And we miss the fact that life is going to come at us no matter what. And God wants us to be prepared. Think of Abraham, my favorite example of this. God comes to Abraham one day. He's in the pagan city of Ur, the Chaldees. He says, Abraham, I want you to leave here. I want you to just follow me. I'm not telling you where you're going, but just step at a time. You're going to follow me. And Abraham, okay, far out, I'll do that. God didn't come to Abraham and say, Abraham, I want you to follow me. In a few years, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your only son who hasn't even been born yet on a mountain that I'm going to show you. So start sharpening your knife. I don't know if Abraham could have handled that. But through the course of his walk with God, when that happens in Genesis 22, Abraham gets up and he sets his alarm and gets up early and heads out with Isaac with all that he needs for the sacrifice, believing and trusting in God, thinking he might actually have to kill his son, but knowing that God would raise him from the dead. And so that's what's happening in our lives. We don't think it's as dramatic, but when, when the, the success comes or when the struggle comes, you'll need the preparation that God has been putting into your life. Gabriel's announcement seems to refer Mary to a famous passage in the writing of the prophet Isaiah, which says, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah called the virgin-born son Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Gabriel called this same son Jesus, meaning the Lord is salvation. Jesus was and is Emmanuel. God with us, God and man, to bring salvation to the entire human race. It became clear to Mary that Gabriel was talking about her son being Emmanuel as he continued his description. Verse 32, he'll be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. These are quotes and references from or to the Old Testament that describe the promised Messiah of Israel. Emmanuel would be both son of the highest, the son of God, and a descendant of his father, David. In other words, he would be the ancestor and the descendant of David. Now, that's, a, that's, a, a, that's one for jeopardy. The answer is, who was Jesus? The person who could precede David as his ancestor in the sense that he is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, but also God in human flesh. He would fulfill all God's promises to Jacob, which is shorthand for the nation of Israel, and he would establish and rule over a kingdom forever. And so Mary knows exactly what the angel is referring to, her child born from her would be the Savior promised, the one who would regather Israel and establish its kingdom. Now, we can't be absolutely certain that Mary was thinking about Isaiah 7, 14, but she reacted to the angel as if she fully understood she would be the virgin who would fulfill it because she said, verse 34, "'How can this be since I do not know a man?' When Zacharias asked Gabriel a question about how his wife could conceive being too old, the angel struck him deaf and dumb for his unbelief. Mary seems to get a pass. Take a message. 
Her question was not from unbelief. Quite the opposite. She believed Gabriel. She believed she would conceive. But she wanted to know how to regulate her conduct in light of that truth. She was a virgin. Like you and I, she only knew of one way to become pregnant in those days. How should she proceed if she was to obey and fulfill the Word of God? So there are some people who struggle with this. They think, well, you know, Mary doubted as well, and, and you know, God was easy on her. Not, not at all. She didn't doubt the, the Word from the angel. She knew it was true. But she didn't know how it was going to be true in the sense of what should she do about it. How, how was she to get pregnant so that she could obey God's Word? And so Gabriel described the process. Verse 35, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary need do nothing to become pregnant. The conception of the Son of God, of Jesus, would be a miracle. I have no description for you of this process in terms of the mechanism other than what is said here. Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit's creative action without any sexual relationship. Those who want to argue that a virgin conception is impossible are saying that God cannot do miracles at all. And that's the real argument. So there are uh, critics, secular critics, and also religious people who say, well, you know, the virgin birth, that was just kind of a fairy tale added to the story to give it a deeper dimension. Uh, I guess it would be a stupider dimension if it's not true. But, uh, and they deny the virgin birth. And then we, but we don't want to really argue with them about the virgin birth and try and explain to them how it could happen because guess what? You don't know how it happened other than what it says right here. What they're really saying is God doesn't do miracles at all. Why doesn't he? Well, because we know so much about the natural world now. I mean, we've really conquered the natural world, haven't we? Hey, we talk about medical miracles, don't we? It's a medical miracle if you don't die. I mean, you know, as far as medicine, I, I'm thankful for it, but it's barbaric half the time. And, and, and so there are miracles, Jesus himself worked miracles. He rose from the dead miraculously. He ascended into heaven miraculously. It only follows that his entrance into the world was equally miraculous. What scholars and theologians call the doctrine of the virgin birth is a huge subject, of course, but it comes down to this. Because of the virgin birth, Jesus' humanity was sinless. He had no inherited sin nature. The circumstances of his birth call attention to the miracle that was involved when Mary, who was a sinner, gave birth to one who was not himself a sinner in need of a Savior. Rather, Jesus was destined through his birth and the maintained sinlessness of his life to become the perfect sacrifice for human sins, the Savior of his mother and the rest of the world with her, whosoever would believe on him. Gabriel gave Mary a faith builder in verse 36. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. If you recall from last week, 
Elizabeth had decided to keep herself hidden for the first five months of her pregnancy. Mary probably heard the strange report that Zechariah had seen a vision and was promised a son, but no one knew yet if it were actually true. It was true, and in a verse or two, Mary would go to greet Elizabeth and have her own encounter with Gabriel confirmed by a sign. Gabriel's specific message was ended But he took the opportunity to share the eternal principle. Verse 37, For with God nothing will be impossible, or as I said earlier, for no promise from God will be impossible of fulfillment. Everything spoken by God is possible. No word from God shall be void of power. We might stand in awe of what's happening here to this young girl, but it is really awful. It was an awful trial that would continue Mary's entire earthly life. Decades after the birth of Jesus, when he was going about ministering, he was considered by many the illegitimate son of Mary and Joseph. In other words, his mother was still considered to be an adulteress. Add to that the prophecy given to Mary at the dedication of Jesus in the temple that said, a sword shall pierce through your own soul. Could you imagine? Just think with me for a minute about a baby dedication here on Sunday morning. You know, we like to make them happy, joyous occasions. Remember the last one we did, if you were here, it was so cute. Stout, sturdy baby boy. Now I was able to get behind him and goof around with him like he was a puppet or something, you know, and he was saying hallelujah and all that. It's neat. Imagine instead that same couple coming up and I'm doing my baby day and say, hey, I have a word for you, mom. A sword shall pierce your soul because of this child. May God bless you today. (laughs) But you know, that's exactly what Mary had to live with her whole life. Add to that, and think about this on Mother's Day, the fact that Jesus at certain points in his ministry treated his mother and brothers and sisters as if they were no different than any other sinners needing salvation. Never disrespectful or in any way, certainly that would be dishonorable. But there was an episode, at least one episode I remember from the Gospels where the people thought Jesus had gone mad because he was, he was experiencing ministerial burnout. He was just burned out and saying crazy things. He's all spun out. And so they sent for his mother and his brothers and sisters. Maybe they could get him back on track. And when they told him that his mother and brothers and sisters were there, Jesus said, "'Who is my mother?' And who are my brothers and my sisters? They're all these who do the will of God. Not disrespecting necessarily his mother and brothers and sisters, but, hey, mom, what does that sound like to you? It's not a Mother's Day card, I'll tell you that right now. And so Mary lived with all of this, and then add to that, she would watch and behold and see her son brutally beaten and crucified and laid in the tomb. So what we look back at, you know, a lot of times we look back at things just the wrong way. This was really awful. If you get news like this, you're not really thrilled about it when it starts. There are many happenstances, many circumstances that seem awful. Some will last your entire lifetime or their effects will last for the rest of your life. They are your place of service. You have been chosen for them. And that is encouraging news 
because you can then expect God's grace to be sufficient in them. You can go through life trying to end your trials or simply trying to endure them, but God would rather you embrace them and know that His promises enable and empower you in and through them. Mary was definitely going to be the virgin birth mother of Jesus. How would she respond? She would pray singing, let it be, let it be. Hey, do you realize that song is based on this passage of Scripture that Beatles said? Did you ever think about that before? It talks about Mother Mary coming to you with words of wisdom. Too bad you just put Jesus' name in there instead, you know. But, uh, but it, it catches a sentiment, let it be. And we're going to see that now as we go into verse 38. No prayer of yours should avoid God's power. People told me last service, hey, you should sing the whole song. I said, that would even be weird for me. But... Uh, Verse 38, then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Maidservant sounds respectable. Uh, Maidservant, but it's a politically correct term. It's like saying you're a domestic engineer instead of a housewife or a sanitation engineer instead of a garbage man. You know, there's a whole list of politically correct terms. Maidservant means female slave. It was Mary's perspective on her life. She was God's slave. Whatever her master told her to do, that was her duty. Until we understand that our life does not belong to us anymore if we're Christians, we will never experience the enabling, empowering dynamite of God. So maybe you're sitting there saying, well, I don't want to be a Christian I don't want to be a slave of God. Hey, I've got news for you. You're already a slave. You're a slave to sin and to self. Ultimately, you're a slave to God's enemy, to Satan. So you're a slave no matter which way you slice it. I'd rather be a slave for God and have eternal life. We are not volunteers, as I mentioned earlier. We are men servants and maid servants, male and female slaves. From now on, I think we're going to change our approach to things and say that we need nursery slaves. (laughs) Coming up on our next cycle, and we need some teaching slaves for the Sunday school. Sounds got a good ring to it, doesn't it? You can tell your friends, what do you do at church? I'm a slave. (laughs) And you can get kind of glassy-eyed when you do it, you know, and let them think you're in a cult for a minute. Wouldn't that be fun? I know, I know, your parents already think you're in a cult, but... My folks thought that we had become cultic when we became Christians. They, uh, you know, dear, I love them, but they wanted to take our kids away and do all kinds of weird stuff like that, you know, because you become a cult, you know, all this Jesus stuff all the time. (laughs) Too much of the Bible will make you crazy. And so, you know, it was right around the time of Jim Jones and all that, so it wasn't wasn't really good timing probably, you know. (laughs) Got rid of all of our Kool-Aid so that we, you know... Hey, Mom, Dad, you want some Kool-Aid, you know? <laughs> just got back from church. But uh, anyway, uh, slaves, it's a perspective that changes your awful trial into an awe-inspiring witness. Mary was praying not to Gabriel, but to God in Gabriel's presence. Her final words, I, these are some really powerful words Let it be to me according to your word. 
God's word is never void of his power. Why then are our lives so defeated at times? Because sometimes we avoid God's power. We do not want to embrace our service, especially if it's difficult or in the awful category. We want out of it or around it. God is calling us to go through it. God's word is never void, but we avoid it. And you know, we have a lot of resources, especially in our situation here in the United States. A lot of resources. You can pretty much almost always get out of a marriage, out of a school, out of a church, out of a job. There are many things that you can get out of and still have other resources to choose from. I had a conversation with somebody at the door about what a blessing it is when you get to the point in your life when you have no other resources because then you know that you're someplace where God has you and that you have to depend upon His power. But I, I, we, we avoid a lot of this because, and we'll read something in the Scripture. Let's take marriage, for example. A lot of marriage is falling apart. Christian marriage is left and right, falling apart. And so I read, you know, it's not marriage studies that we need. Everybody knows what to do. We just want to avoid it. And so, you know, Ephesians 5, husband, love your wife. Wife, submit to your husband. God says that is a word that comes with power. How do you do that? You do it. What do you mean? God says to do it. Does he live inside of you? Yeah. Well, then do it. Why, don't, why am I not able to do it? I don't really want to do it. I don't want to do it. Why don't I want to do it? Because I'm a selfish pig. I want to do it when you do it. You do it first. As soon as you submit to me, I'll love you. All right, love me and I'll submit to you. And that's what really all marriage counseling is all the time. My husband won't love me the way I deserve to be loved. My wife won't submit to me the way she ought to submit to me. Okay, why don't one of you do it? I'll do it when the other one does it. (laughs) And then this goes on for days or weeks or months or years until you find somebody else who you think will do it. That's, That's it in a nutshell. And we live in a realm where we don't want God's power in our life. You know, God's, God's right there. He says, well, you know, this, this isn't brain surgery. This is just walking with me. Just do it. It's distasteful. What do you mean? I don't want to do it. Oh, so it's kind of like a slavery. Uh, it's, it's that you do it because I told you to do it. Yeah, I'm God. Would I do anything? Would I ask you to do anything that is wrong or harmful or weird or strange or odd? Well, it seems that way, but would I? No, I guess not because you're God and you love me. Even earthly fathers want the best for their children, earthly mothers. Why would God do something like that? And so the struggle is not, you know, I hate it when people come in and they say, God's word doesn't work. I've tried it. Oh, it's your heart. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. I don't want to do it. And as soon as you realize that your struggle is with God and against God and that you are saying no to God, then you can have some victory. Will you be left in the bad marriage, in the bad job? I don't know. That, remember, your service comes, uh, your attitude comes before that. Change your heart. Change your attitude. Let God work in your situation. God's word is never void. We avoid it. Mary may have been going through Isaiah at the synagogue. I say that because her prayer reminds you of this famous passage in Isaiah. All the passages in Isaiah are famous. But anyway, this one, uh, chapter 55, beginning in verse 8. Let me just read it to you. Just follow my, my words. 
God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Man, is that true? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain comes down from the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. Mountains and hills shall break forth into singing before you and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of thorns shall come up cypress trees and instead of the briar shall come up myrtle trees and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You know what God is saying simply? He's saying that His Word comes to us powerfully to make us fruitful right where we are. We can be thorns or cypress trees, briars or myrtle trees. If we desire to be cypress trees and myrtle trees and and walk with the Lord, He says it shall be to the Lord for a name. In other words, our witness and our testimony will be awe-inspiring awful to us perhaps from one perspective, but never from heaven's perspective. From heaven's perspective, awe-inspiring. God's Word is never void of His power. We must not avoid it. Let's pray together. Father, some of my brothers and sisters are in awful circumstances this morning, or what seems to be awful, I should say, obviously, from an earthly, worldly, secular perspective. I'd admit it to them, Lord. I agree with them. There's a part of us that's afraid, Lord, of awful things. And if we're honest, Lord, glad that we're not going through them and a little bit concerned that we might at some point. Mary was such a person, Lord. And what we look back on with reverence and and wonder was a terrible, awful trial. But she rejoiced in it, and she said, let it be to me according to your word. So I pray, Lord, that as we encounter and experience life, that would be our attitude, and that we would experience and encounter life with the dynamic, the dynamite of God's word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.